Hello world, I'm Ethan Hansen, and this is Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. The episode you're about to hear is an interview with someone who's doing cool and good things in the world of quantum computing. Stay tuned no matter what your level of understanding is, because these are always interesting conversations open to people of all levels of knowledge. I had the opportunity to talk to Abe Asva, who is the global lead for quantum education at IBM, about IBM's goal in quantum education, Qiskit, and some interesting things you can do right now with IBM's low-level Qiskit Pulse package. All right, all that being said, on to the show. So I have with me on the line Abraham Azfa, who is the global lead for IBM Quantum Education. Um, Abraham, thanks for coming on the show. Ethan, thank you for having me. It's nice to be speaking with you. Yeah, so let's jump into your information about Qiskit, your role at IBM, all of that. Um, but first, could you give us some background as to what you do with quantum computing or what you did before quantum computing and how you got into that? Oh, sure. So to give you a bit of background, uh, I did my undergraduate studies in electrical engineering. Um, and during my final year of uh, university, I had this, um, I had this uh, opportunity to think about what exactly I wanted to do with my life, how I wanted to continue further. <laughs> and one of the decisions I had to make, I really wanted to pursue uh, graduate studies. Uh, but one of the decisions I had to make was to decide exactly what to study. Um, now, I knew I really yeah. wanted to study something that was a fair combination of electrical engineering, computer science, and physics. I just didn't know exactly what that meant. So um, uh, a very good mentor and uh, professor at, uh, at that time um, gave me a book called Feynman's Lectures on Computation. Um, so this is a collection of Feynman's lectures uh, put into a book. I, I strongly recommend reading it. Uh, it's where Feynman breaks down computation from a physics perspective. It's the first time where I encountered um, the intersection of physics and uh, information, uh, things that I thought Very were distinctly cool. in physics and in computer science. So that's how I uh, got interested in quantum computing and why I started studying it in graduate school immediately after. Yeah, awesome. Um, so what did you do at in graduate school? What was your, um, or is your PhD on? Sure. So in, uh, in graduate school, I studied, um, so I, I worked in the lab of uh, Stephen Lyon at Princeton University, and my work focused on um, among uh, helping out on several projects, one of the key projects I worked on is making superconducting resonators that could be used to um, do the readout of electron spins, for example, electron spins of donors in silicon, things like phosphorus donors in silicon. Um, another project that I did uh, focused on how we work with electron spin qubits, knowing full well that to control and manipulate these electron spin qubits, you need magnetic fields. But at the same time, magnetic field noises all around us. So how do we stabilize mm -hmm. magnets that we need to do computation with electron spins when we know that the magnetic field stability needs to be really, really good? And I'm talking about things like parts per billion. So how do you stabilize oh, wow. fields that well? Um, 
And another very, very cool project that I got to work on um, just before I left was a project on electrons on helium, uh, which is another promising system for quantum computing. Uh, super interesting system where you have electrons floating on the surface of superfluid helium. Uh, and the question now becomes, how do you manipulate them? How do you move them? And if you are able to manipulate them and move them, what it means is that you now have mobile qubits. So in addition to the architectures mm. that people are mostly familiar with today, this would be a qubit that you'd be able to move, maybe shuttle two qubits next to each other and turn on entangling gates and things like this. So a uh, range of different projects, generally learning how to manipulate electron spin qubits in different platforms. Um, still have to finish my dissertation and defend, uh, but uh, okay. ever since uh, about a year ago, um, I've been at IBM also focusing on quantum computing and educating the world about quantum computing. Very cool. So yeah, that's interesting because most of the time in like classical computing, you will move the sort of compute units, the information around, whereas what sounds like what you're talking about is moving the actual, it'd be almost like moving the bits around rather than transferring the information between them. Is that sort of a good Ex analogy? Exactly. So you're thinking of the electrons on helium. This is actually one of my reasons why I love that system. The So let me give you a, a physical picture. If you have two qubits and you let's think about how you'd first make those two qubits one option is you could pattern the two qubits uh on the chip and then you could pattern the way they interact together on that chip as well so now the moment you mm -hmm. pattern them on a chip you have laid them out that's it you're stuck in that um in that pattern you could generate some way to make the coupling between the two qubits stronger or weaker or something like this. But once you pattern qubits, mostly you're done with at least uh, most of the properties of the qubits. In the case of uh, electrons on helium, the beauty of this system is that you can move an electron by applying voltages underneath the surface of the helium. You can essentially move two qubits close to each other if you wanted to. You can, you can then have them interact with each other, and then you can turn that interaction on and off. Um, this, this, is, this is a really cool thing to be able to have um, and also makes the system physically interesting. It also makes it really hard to, to work with. So it's <laughs> a simultaneously interesting physics problem and also a really cool system to work yeah yeah it sounds like a lot of the the cool stuff is also the hard stuff so i get that um <laughs> that seems to be a recurring so, theme in the field yeah so your role at ibm is uh global lead for quantum in, uh, education correct that's right okay so what does that mean um sort of on a like a broad level uh, and as well as like mm -hmm. what does your day-to-day -day life looks like yeah, so let's uh, let's broadly first talk about why you even need to have um, to have this effort on quantum education. So, what you'll find is that quantum computing as a field is still very young. It's still a field that is uh, that that is in its nascent stages, and so it's worth having more people join the field, both from the perspective of having diverse skills, diverse talents. 
um, seeing different perspectives, and also for the sake of discovering the applications of quantum computing in different industries. Uh, it doesn't help if you know everyone from the field is from one specific industry because we're just losing yeah. a lot of talent and a lot of different perspectives from other fields. So mm -hmm. this this primarily this is my motivation for working in a quantum education role, and what this means is making sure features like Qiskit, which is our open source software for programming quantum computers, making sure that Qiskit is accessible, usable, and also that people have the ability to learn how to use Qiskit to program the quantum computers that we have available. Um, one of the one of the reasons why I joined IBM is that this is a company that has global scale and is also the first company to put quantum computers on the cloud. And I remember being in graduate school and hearing this news in 2016 that IBM was putting a quantum computer on the cloud. So the work I was doing in graduate school became accessible to everyone. And that changes the shape yeah. of the field from, from just researchers in a lab who are, <laughs> who are really trying day and night to make these things work to anyone over the internet who can just find a way to... Um, to now <laughs> discover applications for these quantum computers. But what that means sure. also is that given that so many people have access to these quantum computers now, how do you make sure that when someone comes and explores the system that they have the right learning tools? So that's the overall yeah. goal of the, of the quantum education effort. And that's why I'm excited to do this work. Nice. And so then what does your sort of day-to-day -day life look like um, while you're working at IBM? Uh, so it depends on <laughs> it depends on the day is is a very short way to say it's not clear. Uh, okay. But uh, something that you'll always find is whether it's talking to um, students in a university um, or uh, different settings, uh, whether it's uh, enabling someone within industry to use Qiskit, whether it's uh, going and recording something. Uh, on YouTube, as as we're doing in this podcast, or anywhere else, to make sure that the world knows how to program quantum computers, I will uh, I will not stop until my mom and all her friends <laughs> and everyone in my family can program a quantum computer. Um, that's when I'll say the mission is complete. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> I I totally get that. Uh, explaining quantum computing to my mom is definitely an interesting thing. She gets a lot of it. It's definitely good to talk to her. Um, but like you said, um, recording things on YouTube, I, you're, I guess the star one could say of the coding with Gisket YouTube series. Uh, how did that get started? And uh, why is it, do you think it's important to have YouTube video um, information when you could just put it all out there in text resources like the Giskit textbook? Sure. So it's important to recognize that people learn things in very different ways. <clears throat> I personally like to read textbooks to learn something new, but it's also important to notice that sometimes having videos can also be very helpful. So for example, the question of how do you install Qiskit on a computer is much easily answered if you have someone in a video walking you through it very quickly instead of oh, yeah. um, having it written down. 
because what you'll see is the choices that they're making on the screen that are not explicitly written down, which is exactly what the, what's the kind of detail that people like to see in videos. Um, another key thing to remember also is that developers who we really want to make sure are enabled to use quantum computers, classical developers uh, like to learn by watching videos. Um, I personally <laughs> learned Python uh, way back um, in, in undergraduate. I'm, I'm aging myself by saying this, <laughs> but I learned Python first by watching videos so that I could feel comfortable that you know, the thing that the person was doing on the screen is also something I could do here on a second screen. I could just mimic what they're doing and learn and go through that process. So it started as a way of recreating that kind of environment. The team that we have um, for building a quantum community is, is really agile, really active. Um, I, I would like to uh, when we're talking about these videos, I'd like to always talk about Paul, um, Paul Searle, um, Lerone Gill, and Catherine Klaus, who are all involved in making that video series happen uh, among even more Very people cool. on the broader team. Uh, so it was an idea that made this, uh, that came to life based on making things easily accessible for people. Yeah. So um, one of the things that, I've already mentioned a little bit is the Kiskit textbook. Um, I know there's been a lot of new information added. Um, I haven't really had the chance to keep up with it all, but could you give us like a 30,000 foot overview of some of the cool new content that's going into that? Oh, sure. So the, the overall goal again is to make sure that people have the right tools to learn quantum computing and to be able to program a quantum computer very quickly. So the Kiskit textbook is, uh, is an open source textbook. We're trying to make sure that we keep up with the latest topics in the field in addition to showing how to implement traditional things that you'd learn in a quantum computing class using Kiskit. So as always, we're trying to keep this fair balance and also show how to implement and run things on real quantum computers. And keeping it open source allows us to get the latest updates from the community as well. So some of the really cool features that we've been working on lately is making the textbook more interactive. So instead of having written content that you have to glance at on a screen, now we have widgets where you can go and maybe apply a gate as you're learning and then see how it affects a qubit um, and see how you can manipulate the state of a qubit in any special way by using different kinds of um, quantum gates. Uh, as you're going through quantum circuits, which are the things that we build and run on the quantum computer, seeing how if you increase the number yeah. of qubits, what changes you need to make to the quantum circuit. These are all things that you can make into widgets and make them interactive. So I'm really excited about these features that we have going. Um, on the on the community side also, we have several reading groups at this point. If you go to the Kiskit Slack channel, you'll find groups of people who are reading through the textbook and discussing whether it's on YouTube or within Slack channels. So it's exciting to see a community not only interacting with the textbook, but also forming groups that are tackling different parts of the textbook and discussing among themselves. Um, so this this is really exciting. It makes all of the work that goes into these things very gratifying. Yeah, that's awesome. I've definitely been following along with some of the reading groups, um, sometimes not, you know, in real time because time zone differences, but I've been going through and watching some of the recordings. So that's been mm -hmm. awesome. 
Um, do you work on Kiskit yourself at all? Um, or is it more on the Kiskit textbook videos? Or are you working on some of the like, I guess, back end stuff? Yeah, so in in uh, my in the little time that I have outside of all the education work, I try to also contribute <laughs> to Kiskit as best as possible. It's um, it's 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 important to make sure that you're keeping up with the changes in uh, in Kiskit in order to be a good advocate for it. So part of my responsibility, I consider, is to also be making as much contribution as I can. Um, the nice thing about working on educational efforts is that you always have to be coming up with new ways to teach people, which always yeah, exposes always. some of the gaps in the software and the tools that you're using. So mm. I can't tell you the number of times when I'm trying to teach something and I find, oh, it would be really nice to do this and that in Kiskit this way or that way. And then some of those things would lead to a new feature in Kiskit that would get uh, that would get incorporated into the main code base. So teaching is, I think, That's a awesome. really nice way to find gaps um, that, and then to improve the software. So I, I do get involved as much as I can in the software work itself, um, partly because that's my training and also because um, there are parts of Kiskit that are super exciting, which I can tell you about if, um, if you'd like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love to hear about that. Sure. So as, as someone who has worked on um, the experimental side of quantum computing, one of the things I really enjoy uh, working with is the hardware itself. And for this reason, one of the exciting parts I find in Qiskit is Qiskit Pulse, which allows hmm. uh, everyone... So remember this picture that I told you of quantum computers becoming accessible to everyone. Uh, and now yeah. with microwave pulse level access, you really are having full access to the quantum system. It's as if you're in a lab tweaking knobs on a voltmeter or microwave source, um, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So being able to change things at that level in Qiskit is very powerful. So instead of applying, let's say, an X gate, what you could do is apply a microwave pulse, which is what the X gate becomes at the end of the day when it compiles down yeah. to the device. So being able to have that level of granular control is really useful, both from the perspective of designing better gates, coming up with new ways to do specific quantum operations, but also because it allows you find control over things and allows you to demonstrate the physics behind the systems. And this goes back to the question of teaching the physics of these devices um, and how they work. If you're able to fully control the system, you can now teach students, well, I can do this with a qubit. Uh, I can write down what's happening on pen and paper, or I can do it on a real qubit and show you exactly what happens. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a couple of chapters dedicated to exactly this kind of thing in the in the textbook. And, uh, and really, this is the kind of, uh, this is the era of Qiskit that I find super exciting today. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, I know I just saw there's a new Kiskit YouTube video out that's about pulse programming. Um, was that, I didn't get to look at it too much. Was that you running that or was that someone else? No, that was our community team. And in particular, um, the speaker on that video is Lauren Capaluto, who's one of the developers of Kiskit Pulse. Uh, I strongly recommend watching that video because the the amount of pulse that I know, most of it comes from learning from Lauren herself. 
Uh, so I would oh, strongly cool. recommend uh, learning from Lauren about how to program quantum computers at the pulse level. And once you do, now the question becomes, what kinds of interesting things can you do with this knowledge? Um, there are so many papers that you can go back in the field, um, back to the early days of the field, where if you showed that a qubit could, a qubit was a viable qubit, and the way you did that was by showing Rabi oscillations and doing T1 and T2 measurements, things that we take for mm -hmm. granted today. But once you learn how to do um, pulse measurements, you can now do exactly what's written out in those papers yourself today. And it's really amazing to me that 10 years ago, you could show a Rabi oscillation in a paper and get it published in a very prestigious journal. And today, <laughs> you and I can immediately code up a sample uh, and immediately reproduce those kinds of results. It's, it just shows how yeah. rapidly this field has progressed. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, so you're throwing out some terms that I'm not uh, familiar with. I know T1 and T2 are measures of decoherence times, if mm -hmm. I remember correctly. Exactly. Um, what is the Rabi oscillation? Ah, so let's let's have a thought experiment. So first of all, let's think about what a qubit is in the first place. A qubit is a two-level system. Uh, so you have mm -hmm. the zero state to be one of the levels. Let's label them as zero and one. And now let's think about mm -hmm. what you need to do to go from zero to one. Um, the thing you need to do here is to apply some amount of excitation to the system such that you go absorb a photon, you go from zero up to one. But then what okay. happens if you keep applying the excitation? Um, if you work through mm. the physics, what you'll find is that you cycle back down from one to zero. And the cycling from okay. zero to one and from one back down to zero, and then again from zero to one is called an oscillation, in particular a Rabi oscillation. And this is one of the, one of the experiments that you do to make the, the, to make the following statement. I have a qubit. I know how to control that qubit. And in fact, let me show you how I can go from zero to one and back down to zero. So this, this is one of the experiments that you do as you're tuning up a qubit to know exactly how much power, microwave power in this case, you need to apply to go from zero to one out of this process. That oscillation shows you exactly how much power you need to go from zero to one which you call a pi pulse. And that's how we calibrate our X gates, okay. which take you from zero to one. Okay. And pi pulse being the mathematical constant pi because you're doing pi revolutions around the block sphere, right? Exactly. Exactly. You're going from the okay. top of the block sphere to the bottom of the block sphere, sweeping an angle of pi. Okay. Very cool. Um, and then... T1 and T2 are decoherence times. What's the difference between those two? Oh, so the difference between these two is um, is that T1, uh, so T1 is, um, is an energy relaxation time. So we're talking about how quickly you lose energy and go from the one state down to the zero state. Um, T2 okay. is, so that, that has to do with loss of energy in general. Um, Right. P2 is, uh, is, involves loss of quantum information, if you may. So let's think about a qubit that you don't take necessarily from 
the zero to the one state, but you take that qubit to somewhere in the middle between zero and one. You create a superposition state, let's say, that is equal okay. portions zero and equal portions one. Uh, so if you just created that state, how long would it take for that specific phase relationship between zero and one to remain? How long does it take for that information to mm. get scrambled? Um, so that time is is the decoherence time or what we would call the T2 time. So it's okay. in the superconducting systems that we're working with at IBM, these two numbers are fairly close to each other. Um, you, you'd see numbers typically that are within factor of two from each other, but for T1 and T2. One, one okay. immediate thing that you should think of when I tell you these things is even if you were to have... Um, a T2 of, you know, a million seconds, even if you're able to maintain that quantum information for a million seconds, you still always need to think about T1, right? Because you can't maintain T2 yeah. for a very long time if you're going to lose the energy anyway. So these two parameters right. are um, are always, they both need to be specified. Just to give you an idea, at IBM, the, the quantum computers have T1s and T2s in the range of 50 to 100 microseconds, um, or okay. uh, even longer than 100 microseconds in some cases. Um, and wow. for other systems, uh, for example, the spin systems that I worked with in graduate school, T1s and T2s are all in the seconds range. They're very long times. Oh. So th this gives you an idea of where the field stands, right? There, so T1 and T2 doesn't tell you the full picture. Um, there's right. a reason why superconducting qubits are so popular today. Um, it's it's even though you, they might not have as long of a T1 as a spin qubit, um, they're still very very easy to ma manufacture at this point. We've learned a lot of properties about these systems. They're also very good to control. Um, we've learned a lot about mm -hmm. how to control them well. So the, the every time you think about these numbers, you have to think about the system from a holistic perspective. T1 and T2 don't tell you the full picture. Just knowing number of qubits doesn't tell you the full picture. All of them contribute right. to the performance of the overall system. Yeah. And that's where measurements like quantum volume come in, right? That takes into account all of those numbers. That's exactly it. Uh, in addition to all of those uh, all of those features that we talked about, which relate to the qubits themselves, you also have to remember that the quantum computer is is a bigger system. It involves classical uh, classical control electronics. It involves the software that mm. compiles things down to the quantum computer. And so Dealing with a metric that's holistic, finding that kind of metric is really difficult. Um, the metric that we like to use at IBM is the quantum volume, um, and it tries to encapsulate all of these properties altogether. Yeah. All right. Um, so as we're wrapping up, just a couple of questions about the sort of state of quantum computing as a whole. Uh, what sure. do you see as the biggest challenge in quantum computing right now? So I'm I'm heavily focused on making sure that uh, we educate everyone on quantum computing, and I will say one of the biggest challenges, in addition to improving the technology itself, is simply getting more people involved. Um, there is a perception, yeah. I think, that quantum physics tends to generate for itself, which is that it's a tough field to get into, and that's just not the case at all. 
And if anything, having a quantum computer makes it really easy to learn quantum physics. You can just program everything that you learn about these two-level systems on these quantum computers and learn more and understand more of these features. So I think getting more people involved, getting more people from different industries involved so that we can understand how to leverage quantum computing in their fields. And uh, on top of all of this, there's also the driving force of really pushing the research forward. Doing all of these together is very challenging because the field is very young. And I think the success of the field will depend on us not just doing good research, but also building a community around this technology. And that's partly yeah. why I'm also very motivated to be working on these education efforts at IBM. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely awesome um, having learned about quantum mechanics in the past and it just sort of being something that you you get the picture, but it's out there. Being able to play around with it and actually understand, I guess on a more hands-on level, what it's all about is definitely been amazing. Um, what do you see as the biggest promise from quantum computing moving forward? Um, however, many down the, however many years down the line you want to take that? <laughs> So the uh, this coming from a background um, in research, the thing that excites me the most about quantum computing is the ability to simulate complex quantum systems on these quantum computers. Uh, the ability to do this has you know multiple implications depending on your industry. One is that you would be able to simulate um, the chemical properties of different chemistries such that you can maybe design better drugs. Uh, so this would be an interest for the healthcare industry. Personally, for me, the most uh, exciting thing is to see this ability of a quantum system, which you make in a clean room and then put in a fridge <laughs> and you cool down and manipulate to make that quantum system mimic another quantum system. So to be able to do what's called quantum simulation of physical systems. Um, that That is one of the original motivations for the field anyway. If we're going to simulate nature, um, there was a statement made by Feynman, something to the to the extent, uh, something that I'm paraphrasing here, but the statement is something like, if you're going to simulate nature, you might as well um, do it properly and you might as well simulate nature, which is quantum mechanical on a quantum system. So the yeah. idea here is we'd be able to understand more physics and uncover new physics that we don't know about today using these systems. That's to me the most exciting yeah. part. Definitely. All right. Uh, where can people find out more about you, what you're working on, Kiskit, all of that? Oh, sure. So uh, you'll always find me on Twitter. I'm very active there. I'm uh, Abe underscore Asphalt. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Abraham Asphalt. Um, all of the tools that we make for Kiskit are available at kiskit.org. And in particular, the educational tools that we're making are always at kiskit.org slash education. Uh, you'll find our textbook there. Um, you'll find our video series there. And you'll find all the efforts that we're making to interact with our community and make sure that we all have the tools necessary to learn quantum computing. Awesome. Uh, Abe, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk about all things Kiskit, Pulse, uh, just Fantastic all around. Ethan, thank you for having me. This was a this was a great discussion.
A couple notes before we jump into everything. Um, the audio seems kind of out of sync in the interview. It's not really. It's an artifact of lag between us while we were actually recording. Um, I'm sorry, I did the best I could to make it good, but it's not perfect. Other thing is we have new sound effects um, from Zapsplat. Um, that's pretty cool. I'm able to actually play around with the volume. Let me know what you think of those. I actually like them um, pretty well. So I don't actually have previous episode corrections, but I want to give a second to give a big thank you to everyone who's been reaching out to me to say they like the podcast. It's super encouraging. makes me want to keep making episodes. I really, really like that. Um, I did get a listener comment in the listener questions section. Um, not really a question, but a comment. Someone reached out to me on Twitter to say that my podcast was very informative, but that they would like to give me, that they would like me to, quote, liven myself up, which I, I thought was kind of funny, honestly. Um, I didn't realize that was a problem. Now that I'm aware of that, I am taking it into consideration and modulating the tone of my voice. Um, I also appreciate critical feedback because it tells me how I can, I can, ha I can improve. Um, uh, apparently I should learn how to talk. If you have a correction for a previous episode, a question about something I've talked about or that someone on the podcast has talked about, just a note you want to share any of these things, please reach out to me on Twitter at one Ethan Hansen. You can also email me one Ethan Hansen at protonmail.com. Pretty much one Ethan Hansen on everything. So it's probably me, but don't take that. That's not a guarantee. Um, yeah, that's all I have for episode corrections and questions. Please let me know if you have any for the future. All right, further resources. So as always, there's more information in the show notes with links to all the things Abe mentioned, including the Kiskit textbook, Kiskit YouTube videos, although I've actually linked to NVIDIAs instead of YouTube because um, YouTube is... there's issues there. I prefer NVIDIAs. Um and as well as Kiskit, like, general website, and his Twitter. Um, Quantum Computing Now is produced in partnership with thequantumdaily.com. The Quantum Daily aims to cut through the technical jargon and the overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality, comprehensible content about quantum computing. If you enjoy this podcast and would also like text resources, be sure to check out thequantumdaily.com, which I have linked to in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.